I think it's a very central topic in Jewish life. It's a topic that really dominates really everything that we're kind of focused at. If you were to really uh, distill every, uh, I guess, every focus of, of Jewish life and behavior, you would end up at this destination. Uh, and that is the idea of a mitzvah. You know, a mitzvah has, the idea of a mitzvah has been kind of corrupted a little bit in modern society. A mitzvah has been kind of demoted from being what it is as a commandment to, to being a good deed. You know, the word mitzvah, if you know Hebrew, tzivui, is an instruction. If you were in the Israeli army, they said, okay, I'm, I'm giving you a commandment, a tzivui or a mitzvah, to do something. They say, well, it's a good deed. It might not be a very good deed, at least uh, depending on what your standards are of good deeds. Uh, but a, a mitzvah is a central element of, uh, I guess it's at the epicenter of Jewish life, uh, philosophy, certainly, and, and practice as well. And I think a good question that a lot of people ask is, why do we do mitzvahs? Not only that, I think people ask, okay, we could do mitzvahs, but why do we have so many of them? You know, if, if the Almighty wanted to give us mitzvahs, clearly he did, um, you would think that maybe one mitzvah would suffice, or ten, or, I don't know, fifty, and the actual number of mitzvahs that we have is in the hundreds. In fact, the Talmud tells us, very famous, anyone knows how many mitzvahs we have? 613. 613. How do you know that? That's how many commandments are. But where do we know that from? Rambam. Well, we know it from the Talmud. The Talmud says there's 613 mitzvahs, 248 positive, and 365 negative. But the Talmud actually doesn't ever break down what's a mitzvah and what's not a mitzvah. That's why, like you said... Right, so they end yeah. up being, there's actually, if you count them, there's thousands. It's yeah, just right. that these are categories of mitzvahs, and many mitzvahs have subcategories of mitzvahs as well. And of course, the Ram, like you said, was the first one to write the book called Sefer HaMitzvahs, the book of mitzvahs, where he delineates and starts counting mitzvah number one, mitzvah number two, and three, all the way to 248 positive and 365 negative. And of course, the Rambam always wants to make his job harder. So he says, I'm going to give you the mitzvahs, but I'm also going to order them in order of importance which is interesting, because he starts off with the most important mitzvahs, and faith, and fear of God, love of God, and emulate God, all the kind of more, what we would say, more central uh, to Jewish philosophy, Jewish, certainly, life and practice, uh, and, uh, and that, um, yes, go ahead, Ben. Well, I have two questions. Yes? Is it assumed that it's in order of importance? Or it's, it's heavily implied. It's not, it's not, it's, okay, it's, so it's implied. yes, but, go ahead. But isn't each mitzvah supposed to be equally as important? Because you don't know you don't know the cosmic significance of the mitzvah, what it does, what it, what, it, what permeation it causes. Uh, well, that's a mishnah. The mishnah tells us that we have to do all mitzvahs. We can't say, well, make a hierarchy. I'm just going to do the top ten, you know, top twenty, or ten percent of the most important mitzvahs, and I'll ignore yeah. the rest of the mitzvahs. Right? Um, you should. Uh, have a rutz le mitzvah kala kavachamur. You should chase. You should pursue an easy mitzvah, a light mitzvah, kind of one that eh, no big deal, right? As as aggressively as you would pursue a major mitzvah. And I think a good question to ask is why do we have so many mitzvahs? I think you know where's the breakdown? The breakdown should either be we should have an infinite amount of mitzvahs. Maybe we do have an infinite amount of mitzvahs. Maybe that's a good answer. But you know, wouldn't one be enough? You know, what's the purpose of having such an a abundance uh, of mitzvahs? I think that's I think, a question of what I want to kind of establish um, as an introduction. 
Question number Go two. ahead. Question Is number two. Thank you. Any correlation between the number of negative mitzvahs and the number of days in the year? Yes. Okay. So the Talmud tells us, this is the same Talmud Makos, tells us that there's 365 days of the year corresponding to 365 negative mitzvahs. We have 248 positive mitzvahs. Now, positive and negative mitzvah. Positive means do something, right? Eat matzah, put on mezuzah. And a negative mitzvah says don't eat, you know, pork and don't eat all the things you're not allowed to eat and don't do this and don't do that and don't take a sacrifice out of Jerusalem and consume it out of Jerusalem like more uh, esoteric mitzvahs that there are. Uh, now... <laughs> yeah, shat- well, Shatna is not so esoteric. You know, but we all. I mean, it's, still, it's beyond our comp- comprehension, yeah. yes. Uh, but we can still fulfill it. Um, now, the 248 positive mitzvahs, we're told, they correspond to our, to our 248 limbs, Evarim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in the Midrash, which is a parallel book to the Talmud, it says that the 365 is not corresponding to days of the year. Rather, it's corresponding to sinews in a human body. So it's a little bit of a, a, you know, it's more congruent, I would say, when you look at the Midrash and how it delineates the roles of the positive and negative mitzvahs. The positive mitzvahs correspond to the amount of limbs in the human body, and the negative mitzvahs correspond to the amount of sinews in the human body. What, and what is a sinew? A sinew is like a muscle. Ah. Now, um, which is interesting. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I want to, I want to kind of shift gears there because I'm going, to, I'm going to fuse these two ideas together. This was a recent epiphany of mine. Um, we also have another idea that I would say is kind of the goal of the mitzvahs or the, certainly the goal of, of Jewish life and that's the idea of olam haba, which means the next world. And we call it the afterlife. It's a very poor it's a very poor translation because afterlife seems like a, you know, the, the epilogue. Like life is central and then the, there's what comes after. It's kind of like the dessert, so to speak, to life. In Judaism, it's the opposite. Here is the preparation. This is like where we're getting ready and then the afterlife is actually life. So right now, we're actually in the corridor to life. So much so that the Talmud even compares life here to life in the next world as the life of a, uh, a child in utero, a fetus, an embryo, and that's the life there. That's just a preparation for them to come out into real life. But if you were to zoom in onto the embryo and you were kind of were able to communicate with him or her or them, and you would say to them, what's life? Well, they say, this is life. And then, oh, maybe there's an afterlife. Maybe yes, maybe no, right? That's what they would say because that's where their world ends. That's the only perspective that they have. But we know because we know that that's just a preparation. Thomas says, well, that's exactly the same thing. Here in this life, this is our gestational period where we're getting ready to kind of come to term and to live a real life. That's what the Talmud is a very hard thing for us to accept because we're not used to thinking in those terms. We're thinking, okay, this is life. Oh, if I behave and I'm a good Jew and I do the right thing, oh, maybe I'll have a portion in some other life. I won't just be like dead on arrival and just disappear. I'll just be buried and be gone forever. I'll have something else. That's the way we think. But it's exactly the opposite. That life is life. This is just the corridor, just the, 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 the hallway, so to speak, that we're taking just to get to the destination. 
which is interesting. Uh, but if you look at Jewish sources, you'll find that the goal of the Jew, indeed the yearning, the striving, the, the, the sum total of a life well lived, is earning a ticket to Ulamaba. In fact, the Mishnah tells us that if that all Jews have a portion of what to come, call Yisrael Yeshlam Chet Lamaba, all Jews have a portion of what to come, unless you do horrible, egregious sins. It's, it's like the Rambam gives us a list, the aforementioned Rambam, the Mishnah tells us a list of people, the gravest sinners, those are the ones that they lose their portion in Olamaba, in what is poorly translated as afterlife. And my question is, how do we obtain Olamaba? And does that maybe have a connection with the mitzvahs and the abundance of mitzvahs that we have as those being tickets to access Olamaba. So we're kind of approaching it from both angles. So this is kind of the uh, introduction. Now, Lutzato, Lutzato is one of the first two places you would go if you want to know what Jews believe about something. Probably you would go to the Rambam, uh, because he's, of course, you know, the great codifier of halacha, of philosophy, of Jewish everything. Certainly he would probably be the first place you'd go. And then you would go to Lutzato because despite living, uh, you know, a mere, uh, what, uh, what, what was it, uh, 39 years and being exiled, you know, can you imagine what people who were 39, uh, who were kicked out of their play, had to, had to, had to relocate uh, managed to write like 150 books, all of them that are like absolute classics. But either way, he is one of the places that we go to to understand uh, Rabbi Lutzato, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, known by his acronym uh, Ramchal, if that name okay, sounds okay. familiar. Uh, if you have a book, a book called The Way of God, Derech Hashem, it is a very wonderful single volume, which is nice because sometimes, ah, Talmud is great, it gives you all the answers. But it's six to three books, right? You know, uh, who got time for that, right? <laughs> um, but uh, Lutzato writes this book called The Way of God, which will explain to you all of Jewish philosophy. Everywhere, from beginning from theology to theodicy to all aspects of understanding the Jewish perspective on life, which is fantastic. But he says like this. Is, there, is that book available in English? You know? Yes, it was translated many, many different times. Okay. Uh, Art Scroll has a translation, Feldheim has a translation. I'm sure there's like okay. some sort of Sensino friends. I'm sure everyone translated it. It's a classic. Uh, he lived 1707 to 1746. He was in Italy, and then he moved to Israel as a young man. And of course, he died as a young man as well. He died in a plague that swept through northern Israel. We know that there was a renaissance of Jewish civilization in northern Israel in the late 15th and then 16th and even early 17th and 18th centuries. Um, so, especially in northern Israel, Sfat, of course. Uh, so he was there, and uh, there was some sort of play that swept through, and he died at a very, a very young age in relative obscurity, but his books really carved out a place for him in Jewish uh, immortality. Either way, so he says that he, when he, uh, in his book called Mesilat Yisraim, The Path of the Just, which may be a book that you've heard of, uh, because that is also considered the single volume to Jewish, uh, to Musar, to Jewish ethical behavior. 
how to live a good life as a Jew, and what are kind of the stages of growth uh, as an individual in your behavior and your ethical character. That's his book. So he starts off like this. He says, the goal of every person is to find what their purpose is in life. And as Jews, we know our purpose is to have the absolute pleasure, which doesn't sound like really what Jews do, which is interesting, but let's put that aside. Uh, and this pleasure, indeed, is... And I have a week to talk about this next week. If you guys invite me back. And uh, this pleasure is indeed in Olam Abba. And if you look at all the sources, and I can give them to you, email them to you, there's all the sources talk about Olam Abba, it's a place of consumption. Just like imagine you are walking down a long corridor to get to the big ballroom where the event is, and then, uh, but there's one catch. The catch is that your actions that you do along the way are going to determine what kind of status you get when you get to your destination. So thus, the goal is certainly the destination, but the, uh, the, the, the way to get there, the means to get there, the time that we're spent over here, that determines what kind of life of consumption we have in the real world. And says Lutzato that the, the goal of the Jew is to have pleasure, the highest level of pleasure. And he says there's obviously different levels of pleasure, which is an interesting idea, uh, just uh, as a side. And the place of the pleasure is in Lamaba. But the way to get it is this world with doing mitzvahs. So Ramchal, very clearly at the beginning of his book, he connects these two ideas, and he says that the goal of life is to get Olamaba, but the means to get Olamaba is mitzvahs. Thus, we find a kind of fusion of these two ideas. And my question that I want to ask is, how does doing a mitzvah equate with achieving immortality, so to speak, or, uh, or eternity, or creating a legacy for yourself that lasts forever? And I found, what I found recently, and I kind of clarified this uh, actually yesterday, was that there's actually multiple paths, and that to me is fascinating. Yes, Ben? Um, so, does, uh, you know, God, God judges us here, right? So, like... Um, like, uh, based on where we are in our um, status. So, like Moshe, you know, he hit the rock, he got a severe punishment more than if I hit the rock. Yeah, it's like right? boxers, right? You got boxers within your weight class. Yeah, so is that the... Is, I know you were saying metaphorically, when you enter the court, when you enter Olamabai, you have your status, but how is that determined? Like, um, is God judging me on the same playing field as, my, you know, as him, or... or you know, if we all do the, if we do the same mitzvahs, uh, so I, I always learned that uh, you're judged on what your potential is, what your ability is. Not like uh, how come right. you couldn't be like Moses? How come you couldn't be like you know this person, that person? It's how come you couldn't be the best you? How come you couldn't do? And I'll you tell you were? something cool, which kind of brings your point. The Rambam tells us when he talks about the laws of repentance, he says that every human, every human, every Jew, every human, can be like. Moses, which sounds obviously the exact opposite of what you said, but really he's saying the same thing. Moses was fantastic because he achieved his potential. He matched out his potential. Now his potential happened to have been infinitely greater than any one of us. Even if we match out our potential, we can't become prophets. But we can be as great as Moses in as much as we fulfill 
the amount that we were allocated and the capacity we were allocated. But that indeed proves your point, that everyone has a tailor-made uh, a soul and a tailor-made body and tailor-made circumstances and tests and nisyonot that create their spiritual world and they're judged as individuals. And that's why, by the way, we don't judge because it's for the Almighty to judge. Who's to say that your blood is redder than your fellow? Maybe his blood is redder than you. There's no way for us to know who's better than someone else. There's no way. And supposedly like, every obstacle we can overcome because God wouldn't put something in front of us that he can't overcome when it comes to doing right or wrong. Yes, yes. But everyone's obstacle will be different, right? None yeah. of us are given the same obstacles that Abraham was given. Obstacles or tests, however you want to... Yeah. Uh, like the go sacrifice your kid. That, that wasn't one of our tests, I don't imagine. If it is, don't do it. Okay, so my question is like this. How we know that the goal of life is to get a Lamaba. We know that the means to get that is with mitzvahs. My question is, how does doing mitzvahs equate to getting a portion of the world to come? Do I have to do all of them? To do some of them? To do one of them? doesn't matter how I do it. All these questions, and I found that there are at least three paths. And to me, this is very fascinating. Uh, and perhaps even there's some shortcuts, which I told this to one of my students. He's like, Rabbi, you got to give us a class in spiritual shortcuts. We just want to know, just give us the easiest way to do it. I say, just be careful what you wish for, because I'll give it to you, but you're not going to like it. I'll give it to you guys here. You won't like it either. Okay. So let's go back to the idea we started here with. We have 248 positive mitzvahs corresponding to the human body. And then we have the 365 negative mitzvahs corresponding also to another facet of the human body. Is that a coincidence? Were the mitzvahs given to us to mirror who we are? Or is it maybe the opposite <clears throat> true? It, it, clearly, it's not a coincidence, right? What about, why? Like, is it just like, you know, every limb has a corresponding mitzvah? Do we know what that is? And also, like, wh- what does that, you know, what does it mean that there's an, is it just a coincidence? Really nice. Oh, there's 248 limbs. And by the way, do we even know what these 248 limbs are? Is every fiender considered a different limb? Is it bones? What is it exactly? Clearly, and and we know that that adds Jews who are trained to study Torah very critically. We know that it's not possible that this is just a coincidence. Oh yeah, just whoa, how cool is that? Let's just write it down and put it for posterity. The answer is, is that the goal of the mitzvahs is to purify us. Thus, we can say that every mitzvah makes us complete in the corresponding limb. In fact, if we were to go back to that renaissance that happened in northern Israel, we find another great Jewish writer whose name I don't remember, but who wrote a book that he's known by called the Sefer Haredim. Sefer Haredim is a book on mitzvahs, but what he does is he says, I'll tell you, which mitzvahs correspond to which limb. And he figured out, he explains the whole book is based upon this principle, is that with the observance of the mitzvahs, we are kind of creating this avatar of ourselves. It's as if you do a mitzvah that corresponds to your left forearm, now you kind of earned your left forearm. They're like, that is something that you accomplished. It's yours in a spiritual sense. 
You do all the mitzvahs, and you have completion. And that is who you are spiritually. If we look at people, we could see what they are physically. We could see what they are physically. How do we know what they are spiritually? That we can see, obviously. But what does that even mean? Are we all the same? We all have a soul. Okay, that we know. All humans have souls. Okay, so is every soul the same? Well, every, everyone's body is different. Is it possible that the souls will also be different? You would think so, right? We're kind of used to thinking, we, this goes back to the original problem. We have kind of a very much of a body and physical centric view of the world. Like we think this is the real world, and this next world is some other world which is less significant than ours. And, uh, and uh, in concert with that, we think of like our body as being who we are and the soul being kind of there, right? But really, it's the opposite. Our soul is really who we are. The body is kind of just there. But even amongst our bodies, we see that people are different. So certainly, our souls are different. But our souls, we have a say in deciding how we're going to formulate our souls. Our actions, like we said, like this world that we're going towards, we earn it with our actions. We create our spiritual life, our spiritual existence with our actions. We do all 248 mitzvahs, we complete all 248 spiritual limbs that comprise our spiritual existence. Almost in a weird way, uh, of course, this is oxymoronic, our spiritual body, kind of if you visualize it like that, is comprised of our mitzvahs. Thus, it's not a coincidence at all that there's the exact same amount of mitzvahs as limbs because they're designed, they're complementary. Who you are is determined, who you are spiritually, is determined by how many of these 248 spiritual limbs you earned. And this would, of course, explain why we have so many mitzvahs, because the mitzvahs are because we're so complex, or I'm saying maybe we could have been that much more complex, and then we'd have that many more mitzvahs. But either way, the answer to the question, why we have so many mitzvahs, is the same answer as why are we we, you know? Couldn't that be when it says God created man in his image, since the mitzvahs is from God, that, that, that's the image he was created in? So that's an interesting question. What does it mean in creating in God's image? Because clearly it's not... I know. It yeah, right. Not, so um, I'm just saying, but I'm just wondering, that just struck me that uh, the mitzvahs... From God, and it said the Torah came before the universe. The Torah, the, the Torah yes. is the blueprint for the universe, so the mitzvahs are the blueprint. So, if you're created in God's image, it, that's the, the spiritual image of those you know, mitzvahs. So, I, I think, I just, it, yeah, which is interesting because now that you're bringing the fact that the Torah precedes the world, is it possible that the reason why we have 248 limbs? is because the Torah, the blueprint, so to speak, yeah. dictated that the amount of instructions needed to perfect, perfect man is 248, plus 365. Thus, when man was formed, means that came afterwards, which is a weird way of thinking. Like, we think of, okay, we have us, and now let's fix us with mitzvahs. And what re- perhaps what it is, right, in line with what you're saying, David, is that, no, like, the Torah came beforehand... And thus, when God said, hmm, let us make man, right? In chapter 1 of Genesis. Well, how are we going to make man? Well, man is going to be the, the purpose of this Torah. 
that they could use the mitzvahs of the Torah to, you know, to change. You know, the reason why we're unique is because we're dynamic. A human does not need to remain in the same status that they were. In fact, they, they're not going to. They're either going to ascend or descend. They're either going to progress or regress. That's, that's the human condition. Right? We can choose, thus, our status is in flux, in limbo. And it's up to us and our decisions to determine, are we going to become great or are we going to you know, descend uh, morally, spiritually, uh, and bring the world down with us as well. Uh, so that's an interesting idea, that perhaps, indeed, it was the opposite, that the man was formed to fit the model that the Torah already had, yes. not that the Torah was there to, to, uh, to fix the already existing, pre-existing mold of, of man, which is a very interesting idea. I don't know if for sure, but I like I like where you're going there. Yeah, very interesting. So, like this, just just think about kind of what pressure this puts on us. You know, we say, okay, we're going to do mitzvahs. Well, I want to do mitzvahs, but the mitzvahs that kind of jive with me. Some mitzvahs are kind of like I don't, I don't understand them, or they're for me. But when we realize that when you do a mitzvah. It's not, it's not like you're doing God a favor. God doesn't do your favors, clearly. Right? By any... Uh, by any uh, if you subscribe to any uh, theological stream of, of thought, God doesn't need your favors, right? Clearly. You're doing it for yourself. Mitzvahs are for ourselves. So we say, uh, all I need is four or five mitzvahs, or, you know, or 200 is fine, uh, 248. Uh, but if we think about it in the sense that we're building kind of our spiritual body, like, you know, how uncomfortable is the following question? Like, if I told you, okay, I want you to tell me, try to just imagine, what's more painful, like, to have your left arm amputated, your eyeball gouged out, or your fingernail just pulled off? That's a very uncomfortable question. And now, well, you'll survive, right? I'm not saying we should try this at home, right? This is just... This is, this is an analogy, right? Let's try all three and see which is the... <laughs> right, but why... <laughs> no, no, I, but just to think about it, which one would I... If I had to choose one, why, why don't we do those exercises? Because to us it's unthinkable to look at ourselves, you know, as a collection of limbs and organs. No, we're, we're one human, right? And to start pulling prime things off, that takes away from who we are as, as a human, right? If we ignore some mitzvahs, we say, those mitzvahs are not for us. We're essentially doing that to our soul. And then indeed it makes a lot of sense what the Mishnah says that, that David quoted. We can't say, oh, these mitzvahs are not so important. Eh, your pinky ring toe, whatever, your ring toe or your left foot. Who cares, right? We, we don't do that, right? We don't say, eh, come on, you can walk without it, right? Do you really need it? We don't say that. And you know what? You're right. You don't really need it. But do we want to give up on it? Would we say, ah, no big deal? That's what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is us. When we do a mitzvah, we earn. We earn ourselves, so to speak. We're earning our spiritual avatar that's going to be us in the world to come. We're going to say, ah, you know what? All I need is a brain, a heart, maybe a liver, a couple of legs, right? I don't need all the other trappings. Right? Yeah, you can see perfectly fine, right? Okay, maybe distance. Like, you can't really, you know, pff, really? Is that what we're going to worry about? 
And when we see this idea of the mitzvahs are our organs and limbs, suddenly, like, whoa! No, I'm not giving up on any one of them. And that, of course, is a terrifying thing, but it also, like, if you think about that, what kind of value do we now have for a mitzvah? A mitzvah is not something in favor we're doing for our parents or for God or for the Sunday school teacher or like, oh, you know, I'll just, you know, squelch some, you know, religious guilt. No, it's for us. We are building our spiritual body. Exactly. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to earn it, you have to maintain it, sustain it, nourish it, and preserve it. Absolutely. But, you know, just this thought, like, really suddenly like, whoa, mitzvahs are a different experience now than what they were before. Ah, I'm doing God a favor. Okay, you know, I can't imagine God needs this, right? You know, uh, really? A murder is fine, but uh, a cheeseburger is... Does God really care? Well, it's not about God. It's about God telling you that you can create something amazing, eternal, and it's you, it's not someone else, and you're the only one that could do it. And then, and well, is it possible to get Olam with without fulfilling all of them? Maybe. Is it possible to live without all your limbs? Well, there's, sure. there's some mitzvahs that we can't do right now. Good question. I was hoping someone would ask that. I was yeah, not going to bring it up. The, but davening, that's for the, the, the uh, rituals that we do take place for all those. Uh, so that's right. take place for the ones that we can't do anyway. That's why we have the Shachos Menthamira. They, take, they, they uh, take the place of the sacrifices and the stuff in the temple and everything that we can't do anymore. Right. There's actually parts of the prayer that are dedicated to the reciting of the sacrifice. Uh, procedures and services, and at, at the afterwards, we finish and say, oh, if you pray to the Almighty, that let it be that my study and recitation of the, of the process of these mitzvahs that I can't fulfill should be equivalent as if I brought, as if I brought those. We're trying to mimic the forefathers. You know, Abraham was mourning, Isaac. Well, as well. The Talmud tells both. The Talmud says is that the, the morning afternoon prayers are either corresponding to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or they're corresponding to the morning, afternoon, and evening services in the temple. Right. Either way, but the, 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 the point is, is that even beyond that, there's mitzvahs that we cannot fulfill. But when we study the corresponding Torah portions, we kind of earn that kind of spiritual limb, despite... Oh, by studying it. By studying it, that's right. Without action, you know? Well, I'm saying studying is also an action, right? Studying is one of the hardest things to do. Studying is not really... A, I mean, it is, but it isn't. You know, you can study all you want on top of a mountain, right? Sorry. That's fine. That's fine. You 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 could. I'm saying it doesn't it doesn't exonerate you from the mitzvahs that do require action. You have to do both. You have to do action and studying. So basically, what you're saying is the mitzvahs that we we can't do ascertain right now. We we do in a different form of yes means there's ways for us poverty. to fill those gaps. Fill those holes. The Talmud tells us in the Book of Menachos, page 100, that if someone or we cannot fulfill an Ola, an Ola is a, is a certain mitzvah in the Torah that we cannot fulfill anymore. But we study that part of the Torah and then we get the credit, so to speak, as if we fulfilled that mitzvah. Mm-hmm. So there's another way, alternative way to earn that quote-unquote limb. And, and to us, I think on one hand, this you know, revelation is, it's, it's insightful and it's terrifying simultaneously. It's insightful because now a mitzvah really has more value. Like, we understand why we're doing it and why so many of them. On the other hand, How could we, possibly do we could, we could. It's just that we have to take life seriously. Yeah, but it's, it's 
it's a whole transformation of our existence to do that. But that's really natural. Yeah. It's, it's where we live in a distorted view. And that's why the, the Yetzirah is called a distortion uh, in Jewish uh, philosophy because it distorts reality. You know, it, it convinces us that this is the only world we've got. And, it, and thus it, 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 it models or it molds our perspectives and our decisions and our priorities and our values and our agenda in life around that fallacy. And of course, we get the Torah and it's like we get sober. Whoa! You know, when we get, sh- we get shaken up because this is entirely, entirely inverted worldview. Everything's, everything's the opposite. And indeed, so like I said, it's, it's terrifying on one end, but on the other hand, it gives us a really, I think, uh, wonderful appreciation of the value of every single mitzvah as a whole. We do all 248 plus 365, and kind of th- the 365 kind of holds it all in place, like the muscles hold the body in place. They don't actually do functions. Their function is just support staff, so to speak, for everything else that does function, Right? Uh, and thus, the, 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 the negative mitzvahs are there to kind of prevent us from kind of going awry, just like your muscles prevent your shoulder from popping out. Okay, so that's, I think, I think this is probably the simplest way to get Olama Ba. We just earned it. It takes a long time, of course. Do you get uh, credit for doing the mitzvah, or do you get credit for um, the intent of the mitzvah? So could, well, the Gemara tells so I us. I could study, I could do the davening. Yeah, so off of you. <laughs> do I get credit for doing the evening service? I'm not paying attention? Or do I get credit by you know, doing it paying attention? Yes, yeah, so this is a good question. Kind of once we're doing a mitzvah, how do we have to do the mitzvah properly? I want to hold off on that. I'm going to come back to that uh, again. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to talk about it. Not the procedure as much as kind of the intention. Um, and you're right, I, I agree that you're right, that it, for us to kind of earn our ticket using this path, it really is a lifelong effort to obtain it and certainly to preserve it. And that's okay, we have a life. But, you know, that's what the life is for. Is it possible to just achieve it all in an hour? It's kind of like the cliff note. Where, where's the cliff notes? There's got to be a chance, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, go to free parking and get all the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Is, is there any way to obtain all of it mm-hmm. while kind of standing on one leg, really? Like just get it all. Uh, because this seems kind of hard, right? And obviously, if you could just earn it all in an hour, that will be a lot easier. Right? Ooh. Right? Be careful what you wish for. This. Okay, so let me tell you the stories that Talmud says here. There are three stories here, and I have them written down here. They're all from the book of Avodah And I'll tell them kind of quickly because the theme of the three. That's Rabbi Kiva. No, not Rabbi Kiva. Oh, I'll tell you the story here. Uh, so this is from the book of Avodah Zarah. Uh, Av- right, Rabbi Kiva also died, but Rabbi Kiva didn't need it. I would assume Rabbi Kiva had even the more difficult path. So, you guys tell me if these stories are familiar, okay? This is from the book of Avodah Zarah in the Talmud 10b. And once again, our goal here is to see if there's an easier way. 
all 248 mitzvahs. You got to do them. You got to preserve them. You can't miss any one because we don't want to be given up even on the smallest part of our limbs. Is there an easier way to do it? I'm looking for loopholes here. Right? We're, the, we're the accountants, right? We're looking for loopholes. Let's find some spiritual, legal loopholes that we can get some shortcuts to Lama Okay, so there's three stories in the Talmud that kind of mirror each other, and they're all within seven pages of, this, of the same book of Talmud. The first one tells of a Caesar who hated the Jews. It doesn't tell us which Caesar it is, but of course, if you learn a little bit about Roman-Jewish relationships, you really find out that it could have been almost anyone. <laughs> Caesar hated the Jews, and one day he's sitting there with his government, with his ministers, and he says like this. He says, let's say you have a wart or um, uh, some sort of lesion on your foot. What are you going to do? You're going to cut it off or you're going to suffer? He said, well, you've got to cut it off. So he says, listen, I have the Jewish people. They're bothering me. They're a thorn in my side. I'm just going to get rid of them. That's what he announces to his people. So one of the people there, the Talmud gives us his name, is Ketia. Ben Shalom, this is how the Talmud addresses him. He said like this. First of all, he tells Caesar, you can't get rid of them. And he quotes a verse, that the, four, the Jews are at the four winds of the heaven, they'll always be around. Just like the world cannot exist without the winds, so too the world cannot exist without the Jewish people. One reason why you can't get rid of them. Another reason why you can't get rid of them is because what are they going to say? They're going to say, you're the first Roman emperor that slaughtered their own citizens. You can't do it. So Caesar is there, sitting there listening, and he tells him, you're right. I can't touch the, I can't touch the Jews. But you know who I am going to touch? Who I, who I will destroy? You! Because you spoke up to the king. So right away, they make a big procession. They're going to execute publicly Katia bin Shalom. And this is a non-Jew, by the way. He's being led to execution. And as he's being led away, one of the Roman matrons said to him, pity the ship that sails without paying the tax. Which is a way of saying, you stood up for the Jewish people, but you're not even Jewish yourself. You didn't kind of pay the tax. You didn't convert to the Jewish people. So you just, you don't, you're trying to, you're trying to kind of achieve this, this, you know, this status, but you don't, you're going to pay the tax. So quickly, then throwing himself on his foreskin, he cut it away. He gave himself a circumcision. As he's being led away, he gave himself a circumcision. And he says, here, I now pay the tax and I will, and my ship can enter. As he's being thrown in the fire, which is not the way they kill him, in a, in a, in a circle of fire, he made an announcement all my possessions, I'm going to donate to Rabbi Akiva. And by the way, just to the historical note, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues made a trip to Rome in the 90s. Not the 1990s, just the 90s. So yes, it might have been, uh, yes, uh, it was uh, Domitian or uh, Nero or Trajan or could have been one of them. Um, fine, he dies standing up for the Jewish people, and a botkol, a botkol is a low-level prophecy, low-frequency prophecy, announced, Katia ben Shalom is invited to Alamba. That's the story. 
And then this is the epilogue. Rebbe, who's Rebbe? Rabbi Judah the Prince. He says, when he heard the story, he started crying. Why is he crying? He says, Yesh kona olama achas, there is the guy who acquires his world after many years of toil and labor. 248 mitzvahs. You got to work and work and work and work till you get there. And then there's one guy who woke up in the morning as a Gentile. Nothing to do with the Jewish people. And at the evening he's dead. Dying for the Jewish people. Right? In, you know, in martyrdom. And he right away has a world, world to come. He achieved it in one hour. That's the story. And this is not the only story. There's two more of them. Quickly, I'll tell you them quickly. The next story is about a fellow by the name of Eliezer ben Dujay. This guy was Jewish, but he didn't, actually, he didn't exactly live a Jewish lifestyle. In fact, we're told that he was a connoisseur of prostitutes. There was no prostitute that he didn't patronize. And then he heard of this one prostitute at the other end of the world who was so talented and so expensive that she charged a whole bag of gold for her services. So he takes the bag of gold, and he travels a long way, and he has to cross through multiple rivers, and finally he gets there, and during the course of the events, uh, there was a, um, a, uh, a, a mission, says the Talmud. And then she tells him like this, she says to him, just like that emission will not go back to its source, you will never repent. And you know you hit rock bottom in life when you're getting musser, you're getting castigated by a prostitute. <laughs> you know that you know that, like, it doesn't get much worse than that, much lower than that, right? This is really the bottom. So this guy, he gets all shaken up from this ep- episode. And he goes, and he goes, the story goes on, and he goes outside, and he says, okay, who's going to pray for me? So he's like, he kind of metaphorically talks to the mountains. Will the mountains pray for me? The mountains won't pray for me. Will the sun and the moon pray for me? The stars pray for me? Oh, no, no one's going to pray for me. Will the heaven and earth pray for me? No one's going to pray for me. Right? And, he, and he realizes the only guy that can help Eliezer ben Dudai is Eliezer ben Dudai. He's the only guy who can help him. Ain hadavar talui elabi. The only person that can matter here is me. So Thomas says he put his head between his knees and he started crying until he died. And when he died, a botkol, the same prophecy, level of prophecy, said, Eliezer ben Dudai says, Rabbi Eliezer ben Dudai, you are welcome to Amaba. And when Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the prince, the great leader of the Jewish people, the president of the Jewish people, the Nasa of the Jewish people, and the Redactor, codifier of the Mishnah. When he heard this, he started crying. Why? Some people worked a whole life to get there, and this guy got there in one hour. And the last story uh, tells of Reb Hanina ben Tradion. Reb Hanina ben Tradion was one of the great rabbis of the time. Uh, and he uh, was uh, under Hadrian. Hadrian, remember, became emperor in the early second century. And he went on a campaign to assassinate as many rabbis as he can. And they grabbed Rabbi Hanina ben Dradion while he was teaching Torah. He had a Torah scroll opened, and the Romans came in, and they grabbed him with the Torah scrolls. They take him outside, they make a public spectacle, 
they take the rabbi and they wrap him with the Torah scroll. They put him on a pyre and they light it on fire. Just the, you learn about the Romans, they were brutal. But in order to augment his suffering, they took tufts of wool, dunked it in water, and placed it on his heart so that way he wouldn't expire. And he's there suffering, and his students tell him, what do you see? What's going on? And he says to them, you know what I see? I see the parchment being consumed, but not the letters. The letters of the Torah scroll that are surrounding me are all flying up to heaven. And he's like, Rabbi, what's going on? Why don't you do something about it? He says, you know what? I'm not so worried. Because I'm dying with the Torah scroll. And the Almighty, who I know for sure cares of, the, uh, of this terrible mistreatment of the Torah scroll, once he's taking care of the Torah scroll, he'll take care of me. Either way, his daughter's there, and she says to him, Daddy, just open your mouth and let the fire come in to consume you. Why are you elongating the suffering? So he tells her, listen, the Almighty gave me a soul. He wants it back. Let him come take it back. I'm not giving it, I'm not, I'm not hastening this. Either way, that's all these things that are happening. And you know who's standing there? The Roman executioner. And the Roman executioner tells him like this, Rabbi, do you promise me if I take away the wool and end your suffering, do you promise me that I have a portion of wool to come? And the rabbi tells him yes. So quickly he pulls off the wool, he ramps up the fire, Rabbi Hanidah Batrani dies right away, the Roman jumps, the executioner himself jumps into the fire as well, and he dies, and a prophetic announcement is heard, Rabbi Hanina ben Dradion and the executioner are both welcomed to Lamaba. And for the third time, when Rabbi, Rabbi Yonasi, Rabbi Yonasi, the Prince, known also as Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy teacher, when he heard the story, he started crying. And saying, like he said the previous two times, some people have to work their whole life to get to Lamaba, and some people... Require it in one hour. Well, not really. Well, that's not really. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I might pass on that one. Okay, so let's see what we know from this. What we know is that it seems like there's at least two ways, right? There's this. There's this one method. This one roadmap of like a slow grind over eighty years. Or 90 years of a life trying to do what's right and doing all the mitzvahs and trying to be the best person you could be and you know, dedicating yourself towards a higher purpose and not getting caught up with all the mishigas, as they say back in New York, all the mishigas of this world and really trying to, you know, to become a fantastic person and doing all the mitzvahs. 80 years, you achieved all your limbs, you're good to go. And then you go it all in one shot. You jump in, like the guys jump in the pool, right? You dip your toe, one toe, then a toe, you know, a half hour later, you're still not in the water, right? And then you have those crazy kids that just jump all the way in. Right? And then, yes, it's painful, but they're there right away, very fast. And this seems to be like a little workaround, like a little shortcut. All you got to do is what? What do you have to do? Ultimate sacrifice. Well, but what? Like, what, what's going on over there? Like, well, you have to die? Why do you have to die? 
you have to giving sacrifice. Yeah, you're giving your whole life for the, for the glory of God, for the uh, you know, uh, the glorification. Okay, so let's try to understand this kind of in, in light of what we said previously. I want to hear you guys. See, I know, I know this is a lot of. I was thinking like, like these ideas. I'm I'm like developing these ideas over like multiple years, and like here I'm just giving you guys a torrent of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that. But what do we say here? So first of all, let's analyze these stories. Three stories of three people that are of unremarkable character, at least hitherto, right? Prior to that. And they all do some great act of martyrdom or sacrifice for the Jewish people or, or, you know, or in contrast to their previous behavior, they do tshuva, they repent, and they all end up dying. And then they all are, you know, are, there's the, uh, the announcement. And then we find a very critical epilogue to the story that Rebbe the great hero of the Jews, he starts crying. So the first question is, well, why did he cry? I always say the reason why he cried is because, you know, it's like when the guy who wins the Powerball, he moves in next door to Bill Gates. And the guy's like, I've been like working since like 1958. So I can achieve my fortune. And this, this doofus spent $2 and just did it overnight, became, he's my neighbor now. Like that's what I always said as a little bit uh, humorous. But, but the fact that someone, Rebbe's crying. He's crying well, for whatever reason why he's crying. But either way, what he's telling us, what we find out about his crying is that both the person who spent their whole life trying to get Olamaba and the person who got it in one second and one instant, they're both the same. And that's why it's, it's, it's just, I guess it's emotional for him, the fact that some people spend their whole life to get to the same, to one place, and other people spend their life to get to the same exact place, but they don't spend their whole life, they just do it in one hour. Um, perhaps we kind of deepen our understanding that we said prior. Prior, we were talking about you do all 248 mitzvahs, you achieve all um, your whole life, so to speak. You're, you're a spiritual avatar, you build yourself, and this is who you are spiritually. And then that's what you are, and that's what gets shipped to Lamaba. Perhaps we can say it like this. A mitzvah is a choice that we do to dedicate ourselves to God. Right? Every limb that we have, every power that we have within our ability, every choice that we make, we have to choose what are, what are our allegiances going to be. Right, we could choose, on one hand, to kind of follow this distortion that we have placed upon ourselves, that this is the only world that we've got. It's the same fallacy that maybe the child in utero feels, that this is all they've got. This is the only world that they have. And to them, it's unimaginable to think that there's anything bigger, better out there. But we could follow that, and thus our pursuits and our priorities and our decisions will follow along that path. And that's how we choose to kind of dedicate our abilities. A mitzvah is a decision to dedicate, at least on a small scale, but ultimately on a grander scale, to dedicate our life and our decisions to God. To this higher purpose, to this bigger picture, to this other world, to this deeper meaning in life, where life really matters. You know, it's ironic that the fact that we learn how important life is, is terrifying, which is weird, like, whoa, the life is wonderful now. Isn't life that ever more grand? 
Yeah, but that terrifies me because I kind of liked it the way it was. But we can choose to live for a higher purpose, living for God. And thus, every mitzvah that we do is a little bit of building this spiritual edifice in which brick by brick we're slowly dedicating our lives to God. If someone dies for God, if someone says, I'm dedicating all my life to God, they're not building it brick by brick, they're actually jumping in entirely. Their very lives are dedicating to the Almighty for this higher purpose. So thus, the end result's the same. The question is, we all need to dedicate our entirety of our lives to God, to get to Lamaba. How do you do that? Well, you do by mitzvahs, and thus you're dedicating brick by brick, limb by limb, right? A piecemeal, you're dedicating your life slowly to God, or you can just dedicate your life all at once to God by doing the ultimate mitzvah, which is to actually give up your life for this higher purpose. And that's what the Ram tells us, that these people are the greatest people that we have. These are the heroes of the Jewish people, are the ones that demonstrate with their life and their behavior and their choices that they actually are living for this purpose. Thus, this is what makes sense to die for. We all have things that we are willing to die for. Everyone has something, that because that's your purpose in life. When we develop our sensitivity towards making God our purpose in our life, certainly we're willing to die for that. But when we do that, we show with our pinkies, with our ring fingers, with, with everything, with all of our humanity, that we are living and thus even dying for God. So the end result's the same, that we have dedicated everything for God. The question is, are we going to do it brick by brick, mitzvah by mitzvah, or are we going to do it entirely? But then the only way to do it is if you die. Because if you die, thus you're, de- you're dedicating every single part of you to God. And that's why these, the, all these people had to die. Uh, but it's interesting that like, it's, it's certainly thought-provoking uh, or intriguing to think that that's really what it's about. It's about we have a, a, a mission. We have a goal. We have a purpose. And that is to see, are we going to choose to dedicate our lives to God. And we have mitzvahs that help us because a mitzvah is the decision that someone would only do because God told him to do so. Someone mentioned shatnas. Right? Shatnas, don't wear a garment that it has wool and linen mixed together. Does God really care? That's not the point. The whole, the, and that amplifies it. The point is, are you willing to do something even though you don't know why you do it, but you're doing it for God? And that demonstrates that you are living for that purpose. To us, we're so enmeshed and immersed in this world, we're looking for mitzvahs that have an impact in this world. To save people, no, or to feed the hungry. We can see the, the exactly. The exactly. Exactly. That it's been... Exactly. And to us, like, okay, those are the mitzvahs that we kind of really do with Augusto. But by having that perspective, we're ignoring the fact that, no, like, it's in a weird way, it's even greater to do a mitzvah when you don't see the benefit from it. Because you're really doing it because God told you, thus you're dedicating see, part of your life to God. There's three classes of mitzvahs. One was just anybody would come up with, like, the That's murder right. or things like that. Then there's ones for historical things like, like Pesach. You know, there's a historical reason. Then there's the third class where 
just because, and there's no like. Well, it's a, just because. Like the vein in the in the meat, like why that? You know, right. Well, I, I would say it's just because for us, it's just because. Yeah. No. No. I'm just saying because that God. From, right. From our point of view, it's just like because I told you so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I I would tell you something cool, and and that is that there is this idea. I don't want to get too sidetracked because I want to finish this. Uh, that was good. It's good that you brought it up. I was going to mention it, but uh, there was this idea that every mitzvah really has only the one purpose. That is to dedicate it for God. Mm-hmm. And even the mitzvahs that make sense, there's two ways to do that same mitzvah. Like, to, you know, we, we don't murder. Why don't we murder? Well, I wouldn't want to murder even if I wasn't Jewish or were commanded to by God. Yeah. But, and thus I fulfill a mitzvah, we all fulfill a mitzvah if we abstain from murder. But there's a higher level of saying, I'm not murdering, not because it's abhorrent, but because God told me not to do it. And that's a higher, it's a higher level of a mitzvah. Because you're saying that you're linking a mitzvah to this grander purpose of dedicating life for God. And I'll tell you something cool, just to kind of finish that off here. Abraham is told, murder your kid. Perhaps the test is, are you not murdering your kid because it's abhorrent and anyone wouldn't murder their kid or because God told you not to? Thus, Abraham is being tested in a mitzvah, in activity that we would abstain from regardless of whether or not God told us to. But the question that Abraham was being faced, faced with, well, why are you not doing it? Are you doing it because it's abhorrent and it's disgusting and no one wants to do it? Or are you living for the higher purpose that the real reason why you're not doing it is for God? Thus, when God flips the switch on you and says, do it, You'll do it. Because it's a weird way, like in a weird way, like when you give someone, in Israel we know we used to give a lot of hitchhikes, right? People, you, know, right? you give a hitchhike to someone. I'm driving there anyhow, I don't care. Like, it's just a nice thing to do. I, I would do it even if I wasn't commanded by God to be kind and benevolent to others. But that's the wrong attitude. The right attitude is to say, I'm doing it because the Almighty told me to do it. Maybe I would have done it otherwise had God not, not told me to do it. But it's a grander mitzvah when I do it and I link it towards dedicating part of my life to God. Yeah. The story of Baal Shem Tov. Yes. Was, uh, I was Hasidim and uh, a voice came from heaven saying that he did some minor thing and he lost, he lost his place in the world yeah. to come. Okay. Yeah, he, embarrassed, he embarrassed someone. I, I, whatever it was, you know, like I know, he used his left hand, his right hand, or whatever, but, uh, you know. Uh, Hasidic story. Yeah, it, but, pardon? Hasidic stories, they yeah. say. Yeah, but, but the point is that, so all those Hasidic started crying and screaming, oh my God, if he can't get into, you know, if he can't make it into the world to come, what hope do we have? You know, he's so high, and this, that. And meanwhile, you know, the, 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 the Bashar Tov starts singing and dancing with joy. And they think he went crazy, you know, because he lost his place to him. He dedicated his whole life, and now he's losing his place. Well, they come and say, you know, sit down, you know, we understand, you know. He goes, no, no, he's happy. And they go, why? He goes, his whole life, he was always wondering if he was doing the mitzvahs to get the reward, that he's doing it to get the place in the world to come. Now that he knows he's not getting a place in the world to come, now he's doing the mitzvahs just for the love of, because God tells him to do it, and he has no other reasons completely... You know, with pure reason he's doing. Then, of course, the voice is just kidding. You're really going to have your place. Well, the okay, so that, that's that's a very interesting idea because I think this is kind of, I would say, probably where, where I actually have that idea in my notes, not mm-hmm. from the Baal Shem Tov, but from the Rambo, mm-hmm. um, that 
you know, to us, like this really, we like we tonight have upgraded our mitzvahs. We upgraded it certainly from the idea of a mitzvah being a good deed to a commandment. But even a commandment, it's not. It's a commandment that's not from kind of God's interest viewpoint, but rather from our viewpoint that we benefit greatly from every mitzvah that we do because we achieve for ourselves a certain spiritual uh, posterity. Then we're doing it for kind of a selfish reason in a way. Exactly. Right? We're doing it for ourselves. But, yeah. okay, fine. But, I mean, What's they, wrong they, with doing yeah, something for yourself? This is a higher level of... Uh, okay, no. so that's, that's what I want to get to right now. Yeah. And this is... This is really the third way to do it. So we have way number one, 248 mitzvahs. Way number two is your whole life, which is all 248 at once. It's not 248 actions. It's one action that equals 248, mm-hmm. but the result is the same. We find an, another idea, another path here, which I think is, I think, probably very, it'll be very comforting for us because, you know, it's, it's hard to do all the mitzvahs. It's certainly hard to give up our life for God. Of course, that's our, these are our, our goals to give up our life or dedicate our life at least to God with all the mitzvahs. But we find another idea uh, in the Talmud in Makros. The Talmud tells us that, uh, quote, Rabbi Hanina says, Rabbi Hanina about Akashia Omer, the Almighty sought to benefit the Jewish people. Therefore, he gave them Torah and mitzvahs. The Almighty wants to do for our better, betterment. He wants to improve our situation. That's why he gave us a lot of mitzvahs. Now, uh, this was the question we started off with. Why do we have so many mitzvahs? Well, we, have an Excuse me, we have an answer. The answer is it's for our own benefit. Now, in light of what we said earlier, this maybe doesn't seem to jive, right? If we need to do all 248 mitzvahs to achieve olam haba, wouldn't it be easier if there was only 110 of them? Or 75? So why is it the Almighty is trying to benefit us by giving us a lot of mitzvahs? That's a question that everyone deals with. So the Rambam, in his commentary in Mishnah, he tells us like this. It's an amazing Rambam. He says like this, I have it written down here in English. It is a fundamental principle of our faith that when a person does one of the 613 mitzvahs properly and does it with absolutely no external intentions, just for the sake of doing the mitzvah that the Almighty told us, and because you love the Almighty, just for the Almighty, he will merit through it one mitzvah, but one mit, just one mitzvah. But the mitzvah is done with absolute purity of, of, of intent. Then you get a lama with that. And that's what it means in the Mishnah. Well, they might have wanted to benefit, to benefit us, and therefore you give us a lot of mitzvahs. You know why? Because when there's a preponderance, there's a lot of mitzvahs, it's not possible that we won't get at least one of them over the course of our lifetime that's done absolutely perfectly. And that's why the fact that we have so many mitzvahs is a boon for the Jewish people because it almost guarantees that hopefully over the course of our lives we'll do at least 
Yeah, we'll do one of them perfectly. And he tells a story, which is actually a story in that same Gemara that we read about Ruchanim ben Tradyon, who was wrapped with the Torah scroll. So he asked someone, or he was one of the great leaders of all time, the Jewish people, but he asked someone when the things were really getting bad in, in the Roman rule, he asked, uh, I don't remember who he asked exactly, but he asked someone, do you think that I am, I'm someone who's worthy of Olam Abba? And he says to him, tell me, did you ever do any good deeds? Which is, it's laughable, because Kareem Atrajo is one of the great rabbis of all time, one of the great heroes of the Jewish people. Of course he did good deeds. But what does he say? He says, yeah, let me tell you what happened. There was once, Kareem Atrajo was the, he was in charge of the charity fund in his town. And there was once a time where some of the charity money and some of his own personal money got commingled. So he dedicated all the money to charity. Because he doesn't want to take money from charity. All of it he went to gave to charity. And the question is like this. If you live a life, that's a very nice deed. It's a very good deed. But if you live a life where you're dedicating your life to Torah, to God, to mitzvahs of the Jewish people, is this the only thing you can find? This one time you had the money mixed together into mingled, and you and you, you donated. It? That's really what you can find. The answer is what he was looking for is one mitzvah that you know for sure you did it, not because people will look up to you, not because people will think, oh, this guy is so special. It's just because you love God and you want to do what's right and you want to be a good agent of the message of the Jewish people, the message of God in the world. That's the only reason why you did it. And therefore, with this, he says, oh, at least I know for sure I did one mitzvah perfectly. And I think to us, it's empowering. If you do one mitzvah, not because someone will say, hey, look at this guy, look what he donated to the synagogue. Look, his name is all over it. He's so generous. Look at me. You know? oh, or you do a kindness, but you make sure to let everyone know, right? Yeah. Make sure you, you tweet it or something like that. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and it, for us, we're kind of wired. Like, I want to have some sort of benefit. If I do something really good, I want everyone to know about it. Yeah. And Judaism has the idea of like, no, if you're doing the mitzvah and you let everyone know about it, well, then you're kind of demoting the mitzvah from being a supernatural spiritual activity to being something that you're doing kind of for PR. It's like the same action that you could do and achieve a spiritual legacy for all time if you just say, take a picture of it, just show everyone what I did. Okay, you'll get a reward, but the reward will be what you assigned that reward to be. I was like, hey, pat on the back. What a guy, huh? What a swell guy to have in the neighborhood, right? Which is reward, but is, it's squandering an opportunity. You do it just because you want to do what God wants you to do. Different levels of charity. One who gives because it's coerced all the way down to the one who gives that That's right. know who's getting it and they don't know he's giving it. You know, type of, uh... So this is, I think, consolation for us. Um, now, I want to make a disclaimer. 
just when the good news came, there's bad news. Not bad news, it's still good news. The caveat. From the text of these sources, it's clear that there is a vast difference between someone who dedicates their entire life, either by 248 mitzvahs achieving completion, or by dedicating their entirety with one act of devotion to God, there's a vast difference between their status in Lama Ba and the status of someone who does one mitzvah and he gains a ticket. Yeah, they, both have, they both have a portion of to come, but the, the difference between the, 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 the verbalization, the, the text, one of them says that this person is ushered into Lama Ba, and the person who does one mitzvah has a chelet Lama Ba, has a portion of the world to come. Of course, we hope and pray and yearn that we will, too, be, merit to have a portion of the world to come. But it pales in comparison to actually earning it top to bottom. But I think, so that's the caveat. So we shouldn't say, oh, phew, you know, like, oh, we are now exonerated for doing all the mitzvahs. Certainly not. Someone online must have done something right, you know. Like, right, but we shouldn't say, yeah. "Oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. I've, yeah, I've been around for so long. I can't. I mean, I can't think of any right now, but I'm sure it's happened, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm good, right? We cannot, we can't get complacent, uh, certainly. But and then and, and, and it is, and it is rewarding, and also it's empowering to think about what one mitzvah can do. Every mitzvah can connect us to the Almighty. Olam Abba is a spiritual world. We do a mitzvah properly and we assign no physical-centric objectives to that activity. Nothing. It's only done because of the spiritual world. If you do that, you're acknowledging the existence of that spiritual world. You're living with the keen realization that there's more to our existence than just what we see, what we can encounter with our physical sense. It's more than just getting old and dying. And it's just all of our life, everything, all the life of the billions of people in the world and the billions of people that have lived. It's all about how can we suffer the least till we die. And that's what a lot of people think. And sometimes if we think about it, you know, what's really life about? You know, it's just like, okay, how do I earn a lot of money so that I could suffer less on my way down the cliff into the total abyss. That's what the way a lot of people live their lives. And we say that no, this is this is just the pregame show. This is this is just a, a tiny sliver of existence that is inconsequential to our real life. But it's inconsequential in scope but it matters the world towards what our life is going to be. Think about this. We're in the minors. We're in the minor leagues here. We're just walking down the corridor. That's what we are in life. We're walking down this corridor trying to do the best we can so that way at the end of the road, when we actually get to life, we get out of the training room, we get out of the road trip, we get to our destination, we should be in the best status possible. And the Almighty loves us. He gives us so many mitzvahs. And every mitzvah is a golden opportunity. 
every single one. It's just an opportunity to just improve your situation, to benefit, to betterment, to, 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 to achieve more, and to, to improve and improve and improve and improve. And we have to kind of scoop up the mitzvahs like, like, it's, like it's, 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 uh, it's Black Friday. Right. You see Black Friday, that's what, it's like. that's what life really should be. Everyone's like, oh, it's crazy, mitzvahs are half off. Everyone just scoop, 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 scoop. That's the way we should be. It's in the Black Friday of mitzvahs. Uh, and it's just the opposite. Like, you know, we have everything upside down, and all we care about is trying to, Black Friday, our kind of spiritual, our, our physical existence. And, but the opportunities with the mitzvahs are just so there. And, you know, just imagine how, imagine the agony and the despair and the depression that would accompany someone who had the winning ticket to the parable but can't find it. Right? Or their kid put it through a shredder. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Oh, you <laughs> or you did it. You're like, oh, okay, I'm just shredding the shredding. Just imagine like your life, just that pit that would descend into your stomach. Oh, but you just imagine that. That's what we're going to feel like when we realize the value of a mitzvah. That's what it, it was so, it was right on my hands and I just put it through the shredder. Oh my goodness. I can't believe I did that. That's what we're going to feel. Because suddenly we realize you know, the, the, the value that it has. I had a, you know, we, we got a new, uh, my wife finally got a social security number name with her, with her married name. We've been married nine years and change now. So she had the passport and everything was the same. And uh, everything was kind of updated to, the, to, the, uh, to her married name besides for her social security number. And once they gave her a problem, so we just took care of it. But, you know, I, don't, I put all my documents in the uh, safe. I have a little safe for documents. So whatever. And it wasn't there because we just got it in the mail. Whatever was hanging out. And my kid said, a nice little card. Wouldn't it be lovely to just cut, like with a scissor? And, <laughs> wouldn't that be a great idea? So that's what he did. And like, I was like, <laughs> you know, like, just incredulity, right? What is going on over here? But imagine, you actually had a winning ticket at the lottery. You actually had it. And your kid just, just cut it up, made it really nice. It's like, Abba, look at my design. It's lovely. What did you do? It'd have to be somebody stopping. Ah, could you imagine just, just the, how the, you know, just the opportunity that you had and now it's lost. We value life every single second of life because every second we have an opportunity to do a mitzvah. We have, we have opportunities. Do as many mitzvahs as we can. It's Black Friday. Not only that, it's sports authorities and Black Friday that are going out of business. Right? <laughs> They're going out of business as Black Friday. Everything's free. And we just, just scoop it up. And we're like, nah, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I think it's like when they talk about you know, hell, heaven, and hell. Hell is actually that feeling that you get when you realize that you didn't, you know, because then your soul Missed opportunities. What the, what the reality is and that you didn't do those things. That's the actual real yes. hell. It's not like a physical thing or burning or whatever. It's the, the understanding of what you did wrong. And it's, it's absolutely devastating. 
It's, it's devastation. But we learn, and, and, and it's not too late. Every second that our candle is still flickering, it could still improve and fix. And like we said, you know, the, it could be the day before we die, or the day that we die, we could change our lives on a dime. Right? But we have to start appreciating the value of a mitzvah and, 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 and just seize them. They're right there. They're so easy. It's so easy. It's, especially now in America. It's like, a, I'm sure like our ancestors are like astonished at us. They're like, how many, you know, how much dedication do they have to do to like read a page of Talmud a thousand years ago before it was all printed? You had to get a written, handwritten copy and you had to squint over it. And now we have it all online and there's apps and it's everywhere. It's just right there. All you got to do is you just got to open your mouth just a little bit. It's, it's in you, you know? And it's, it's everywhere. How many mitzvahs we can do every day? Hundreds, thousands. But of course, you know, we have this distortion. So, yeah, does that really matter? Does God really care what I eat? Or does God really care? That, you know, if I write two letters on Shabbos, is it so important to God? Really, this is what God... And yeah, that is a physical-centric, you know, question. Yeah, the physical world doesn't matter if you drive on Shabbos. It doesn't matter. Like, what, is, what does it matter if you drive on Shabbos? Anyone get hurt? No. But you, you have an opportunity to dedicate your lives to the Almighty. And a small investment, not small, it's a huge investment, but relatively small investment can reap tremendous benefits. And one thing's clear. This is, everyone agrees. The religious people, the not religious, the atheists, the people that haven't been born yet, people that are already dead, everyone agrees that humans are on a warpath to death. Everyone that's ever lived in all of human history has died. Thus, when we choose what to invest our efforts, our opportunities, our time in life, we have two options. We could choose in the physical, kind of material-centric life, or in the spiritual, the soul-centric life. That's the choices, really, roughly. What we know for sure is that any investment that we make in our physical and material life, it's an investment that's guaranteed to go to zero. Because you know what? Once you're dead, you don't benefit from it. We all know for sure, no, none of us here can, uh, would even imagine that we're going to live for another 150 years. Maybe 100 years, but 150 years, right? We're dead. So it's like one of those 99-year leases, right? There's a maximum. We, it's not forever, for sure. And then on the other hand, we have an investment that can live forever. Our soul is around forever. And I'll ask you the question. Who is the person that finds a tremendously pristine beachfront property? And that person says, I'm going to build a house here, summer home. And he's going to build a house. And the neighbor knocks on the door and says, yeah, you're building this nice house. You should know, every year, the tide gets five feet closer to your house. 
And within five to ten years, your house will be underwater. That's the way it's going to happen. Is there anyone that's going to build that house? Well, it's so cheap. <laughs> I was wondering, like, why, why is this real estate so cheap? <laughs> it's pristine property. Yeah, it's, it's cheap, but it's available. You could build the house and you could enjoy it. It'll be fantastic. But you know it's going to zero. You know that for sure. No one pays. Maybe you could have scuba divers. I don't know. Maybe there is some use for it. But if it's underwater, you can't live in that house, right? Every investment that we make in our physical and material life is guaranteed when we're dead to be of no use for us. Maybe it's a use for our kids. If we dedicate it towards something spiritual, it's a use for that as well. I'm not trying, we don't eschew the physical material world. We channel it towards spiritual. It's a simple equation, right? You can sit with your financial advisor. What are you going to invest in? Something that can maybe investment, can maybe grow, but then it'll go down to zero. It's like one of those Enron stories, right? Yeah, maybe you can churn it out a couple more, a couple more quarters, but you know once the secret gets out of the hat, it's going down to zero. Are you going to invest in that? Certainly not. You're going to lock up your funds in that, and then you have the opportunity to invest in something which is around forever. It's just the cost-benefit analysis is so stark. The opportunity is so... You know, it's, it's, it's so clear and present, yet we are deluded into thinking that the only investment that makes sense is to make that beachfront property. Make any, we're, just, we're just blinded. Our hope is that with our newfound appreciation of mitzvahs and our perspective of the value of mitzvahs and indeed what the mitzvahs engender and also what this tells us about what life is really about, wherein we have this other world, which is not some other world. It's the world, and this is just the preliminaries. And, you know, it's, it's I think, very inspiring and very rewarding and very gratifying to know that there's this bigger picture. We're not just here to try to suffer as minimally as we can before we die. Uh, and also the value that we can have with our, with our actions and the value of every mitzvah and the impact we can make on the world and ourselves and our family and our communities, dedicating ourselves to God and doing His mitzvahs. And hopefully we won't need to any, uh, any uh, end-of-life drama to achieve greatness. Hopefully we'll, we'll have it all. We could do all the mitzvahs. We could do many mitzvahs, as many as we can, lishma, with the intention of doing God's will. And by doing that, we kind of reshift what, what, what values we have in life. When you do a mitzvah, it's a, a reframing of priorities. You're, you're shifting, you're making a slight break from the distortion that, that, uh, that uh, corrupts the perspective of, of humans. You're, you're moving a little bit away towards a more clear perspective. Why? Because the only reason to do mitzvahs is because God told you to do mitzvah. And indeed, the mitzvahs that make no sense to us are the most potent towards helping us achieve that perspective. And my, our hope is that we'll gain a newfound appreciation of mitzvahs and try to do as many as we can. And remember, it's Black Friday. There's mitzvahs everywhere. Let's go grab them. And thank you all for listening and for inviting me here. Thank you.